want to begin by considering three phrases that help us to understand a little bit about uh, how to frame our uh, learning from this passage. You get what you pay for. You get what you deserve. And you got where you are because you earned it. You get what you pay for, whether it's a knockoff Apple charger or a Tesla or a $7.99 Chinese buffet. You get what you pay for. You get what you deserve. Or we hope you get what you deserve. Cody Bellinger, getting much praise today for what he deserved, what he deserves from his heroics last night, to the chagrin of Giants fans like myself. John Gruden, Brian Laundry, people that have or will get what they deserve. You got where you are because you earned it. Kobe. John MacArthur. Probably the first time in history they've ever been named in the, first, in the same sentence. Michael Phelps. All people who got where they are or where they were in life uh, because they earned it. They put in the sweat. Uh, the sweat equity. Uh, this uh, sort of one-to-one, you get what you pay for. You uh, get what you deserve. And you're where you are because you earned it. Is a microcosm of the way that we are as young people. The way that we think about life. There's a one-to-one correspondence between what you put in and what you're going to get out of life. Uh, you, inev- you inevitably and invariably will get out of life what you put into it. It's what you've been taught from a very young age. If you put in your time and you study the right amount and you do all the right things, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, you get what you deserve. You get what you pay for. You get out of it what you're willing to put in. That is, if unless you're really smart and you count your cards, and you play your cards right, then maybe you'll end up a little more ahead than everybody else. And if you're really fortunate, you'll get out even more than what you put in. You'll make the right investment, or have the right idea, or or have the right position in your company. And at this point, for you, as a UCLA student, success is pretty much all but guaranteed. In a sense, if You've made it this far, you're pretty much invincible in your station and in your direction in life. We have this sort of Pavlovian or retributive understanding of God as we think through life this way. You see, our good efforts or our good intentions will be rewarded with good results or happiness or at least a somewhat upper-middle-class version of life that doesn't have too much trouble in it. That's uh, as long as we stay away from the bad stuff, because if we do bad stuff, it brings bad stuff uh, in our lives. 
Well, the Bible shows us a very different picture of life, an entirely different economy of how life works. We will, in this life, the Bible says, face difficulty and trial that we don't think we deserve. We'll be cashing checks for things that we didn't think we wrote earlier in life. Uh, That life isn't fair is a truism of truisms. Scripture shows us again and again that trials are not only likely, they are guaranteed even for faithful Christians. Listen to a few passages that show us this truth. Job 5, 7. But man is born to trouble just as sparks fly upward. Matthew 5.11, Jesus himself says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely in my account. John 16.33, our Lord again says, In this world you will have tribulation. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And we know in Paul's life, 2 Corinthians 11, he describes his imprisonment and his beatings, his stonings and his shipwreck, and a whole range of dangers from his friends to his enemies, all because he he desired to serve Jesus. And James himself, who wrote this epistle, himself was persecuted and eventually faced a martyr's death, according to church history. Now some of you may have seen this even in your own life, and if not yet in yours, you've seen it in others. Life in a fallen world is full of trials and trouble. In this life, you will begin to, if you haven't already, you will begin to experience trials and trouble that you feel like you don't deserve. It's not what you paid for. It's not what all this work that you've put into should should come out as at the end. But James, as he starts this letter to these scattered saints where we would expect a greeting and a a familial sort of prayer or some sort of encouragement, he jumps right in and right away calls out against any complacency that there might be in these believers' lives. Any understanding that the Christian life is a guarantee that things will go well or any thought that the Christian life might just be this disconnected, compartmentalized sort of faith in Jesus, James gives instruction to these believers, these with true faith, for when, not if, but when, they meet trials of various kinds. Now, not only does our text tonight show us that we will face trials, it shows us in a very integral sort of way that to be in trials is to be on trial. That is to say, to face hardship or crisis, a disappointment or danger in life is to be tested. 
when you face trials, you are being tested, measured as to the genuineness and the degree of your faith. And so tonight, we will put true faith on trial. We'll put true faith on trial. When put to the stand, what is true faith's response? When backed into a corner by trials, what does faith have to say for itself? When hard times come, how does someone with true faith respond? And we'll see in our text tonight that true faith responds to trials with joyful confidence in God. True faith responds to trials with joyful confidence in God. Tonight we'll see in James 1, 2 through 4, three aspects of true faith on trial. Three aspects of true faith on trial or in trials. The first is the character of true faith on trial. The character of true faith on trial. First, here James very clearly lays out what true faith looks like. He describes what true faith is. Does This is how you, if you have true saving faith in Jesus, how you will and how you should respond to trials. In trials, on trial, the character of true faith is revealed. Look again at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet Trials of various kinds. James addresses these Jewish believers. He says, my brothers. These are fellow members of the household of faith. Brothers who, though they are scattered across the ancient Mediterranean world, hold a common faith. They have a shared trust in the one true God. And James addresses these brothers as such. And it's to these brothers and sisters that James says, if you have true saving faith, when you face trials, your response should be, and he uses this phrase, to count it all joy. That is to consider or to regard these trials with joy. To deem the trial that you're going through ultimately as a joyful thing. You see, the character of true faith on trial is this, very simply, it's joyful. It's got joyful character. Now, to be clear, this isn't some uh, detached or contrived sort of happiness when you are sad. It's not this happy-go-lucky, forced, uh, artificial warm fuzziness, and it's certainly not finding pleasure in pain in some way in your trials. And it's not blissful ignorance, sort of blocking out the reality of the difficulty you're going through. This kind of joy that James describes is a deep and abiding joy in the face of trials. He says, when you 
encounter or fall into or meet or when you face trials. You're not turning your back, you're facing these trials. And so this is a perspective, an outlook that acknowledges the difficulties head on and yet sees the bigger picture of God's work and makes a choice. True faith in the face of trials chooses to consider one's present circumstances, one's trials, and chooses joy. This kind of joy is integral to true faith in the one true God, who is, like Romans 8.28 says, working all things, all things together for the good of those who love him. And so this kind of joy is rooted in trust. It's, it's rooted in trust in a good and gracious God. This kind of response, this sort of joy is admittedly counterintuitive to us. It's not our natural human response to uh, think of our hardships uh, with joy. Our instinct is more so to go to ourselves, our own thoughts or hot takes or emotions. And to give in to the temptation to sort of wallow in that sort of mode, uh, introspection. Uh, We are more often than joy running to bitterness toward God or whoever we hold at fault. Instead of joy, we more often are anxious for our trial to be over or for us to have some sort of definitive answer, a yes or a no, or some sort of clear direction. Instead of joy, we more often are in denial about what we're going through, about the very real issues, or about our own sin in an area, or our flaws, or our shortcomings. More likely than joy, we run to insecurity or unsurety about how others might see us if they think we're struggling with something. Uh, Instead of joy in trials, we are more often over-analytical about things that we don't know or that we can't control. Instead of joy, sometimes we just shut down and isolate ourselves from others in the church who might help. And instead of joy, we often choose to be doubtful about the goodness and the love and the power of the God of the universe. But here James very simply says that if you have true saving faith, your way of looking at trials is none of these other things. But it's to consider your trials as all Joy. Some translations have it pure joy. This speaks to the extent of that joy, a pervasive joy in all of life's circumstances. This speaks to the intensity of that joy. It's a deep and pure joy in the face of hardship. This speaks to the consistency of 
that joy in always rejoicing outlook whenever trouble comes. Now again, to be clear, this doesn't mean that we can never be saddened or discouraged by difficulty at the outset as if our immediate response needs to be some sort of canned joy or happiness that's artificial. Rather, in our struggle, in our wrestling, in our crying out to God, in our lament to an almighty God, we have a choice in the face of trials, a a choice in how to respond next in that moment. And the question from this text is, do you respond in bitterness or anxiousness, or denial, or doubt? Or do you choose to consider it all joy? This joyful character of true faith, James says, applies when we meet or encounter or fall into various trials. This is uh, every color and kind of trial. Whether it be relational rejection or disappointment or a whole season of suffering or the uncertainty of unemployment or being reviled as a Christian in the workplace or cancer or the death of a loved one or a miscarriage or a decade of battling with family conflict. In every trial, God is giving us occasion to pursue genuine joy, to grow in contentment and trust in the promises of God, to cultivate gladness in His goodness to us in all of life. Before this trial, in this trial, through this trial, And after this trial into glory, we have occasion for joy in God. We can respond how we choose. And so the character of true faith in the face of any and every trial is joy that looks to God in trust. That's the character of true faith on trial. Number two, we see the confidence of true faith on trial. The confidence of true faith on trial. You see, uh, we need to ask a question. If this is to be our response, we should choose joy when we face hardship. Uh, The question is, why exactly should we consider our trials with joy? Joy. How is it that James has the gall to charge us so plainly to regard our trials with joy? What is the truth that helps anchor that kind of joy? Well, here we see the confidence of our faith on trial. This is what we can be sure of as we go through difficulty. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith 
produces steadfastness. Uh, This verse, though not the beginning of a sentence, begins with a word for, a word that we often pass over in the English language. And this word for, maybe more helpfully, you can translate it as because. It supplies here the reason or the grounds for our counting it all joy when we face various trials. This is the reason we should regard each and every difficulty with genuine and lasting joy. And it's this, that you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That is to say, you know with 100% certainty that as your faith is being put to the test, it is producing in you Something, and that something is steadfastness or perseverance, some translations have. Endurance, and though limited, but I think helpful, some translations have patience. It's producing in you a kind of fruit in your character. This kind of steadfastness is a capacity to bear with the storms of life as the waves and and winds pound against your soul. Uh, This steadfastness is an ability to hold up under uh, difficulty. This is very simply true faith remaining true faith. It's true faith showing itself to be true through a trial. When everything around you and everything inside of you is telling you to do or to be or to say or to think otherwise, this is the kind of faithfulness, this is the kind of steadfastness that he is producing in you amidst trials. This is the confidence of true faith under trial, a fruitfulness of steadfastness. But I think we need to go to another passage to help us understand what the New Testament tells us about trials. Turn to Romans chapter 5 and we'll see the sort of inner workings of this kind of confidence that James is calling us to. Now we'll see in our future Uh, parts of our series that Paul and James weren't always best friends. But their theology, their theology were best friends. Look at Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured 
into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This passage, this beloved passage shows us that by the grace of God, through, the, through faith in the saving work of Jesus, we have peace with God. As those who were enemies of God, we now can be united with Christ and have peace with God. And verse 2 shows us that this, this grace by which we are saved, we stand in. The idea there is that we continually stand in this grace. And Paul says here in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Like James, he says, what? Knowing that, having confidence that, suffering is productive. Knowing that it produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. The very same eternal hope to which we were saved. What I want you to notice here in Romans 5 is that, is that Paul gives us the very, the, the very basis of our confidence that I think in James is given. It's Granted, it's sort of built into James's logic. It's assumed as we read James 1, 2 through 4. And that's this, that the Christian is to have confidence that trials are producing steadfastness. And that logic is grounded and it's rooted in the very fact that we have peace with God. There is nothing that can happen in this life, however earth-shattering or ground-shaking your trials and your sufferings in this life may be. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8 tells us. And so you have peace with God, and so you, Christian, can have confidence you know, James says, that whatever trials you face in this life, they are producing in you a kind of steadfastness that is rooted in what God has already done for you in salvation. And that same grace and that same power and that same love is evidenced over and over and over over in his faithfulness to you in every moment leading up to the trial you are facing right now. And in every moment until glory. As the genuineness of your faith is being tested or proven, James says, you can turn back to James. Your faith is also being deepened. As your faith is being tested, your faith is being sharpened. As your faith is being tested, your faith is being increased. The Christian in the face of trials has full certainty, unshakable confidence that because of the trial you may be facing right now, God is growing you in a degree of steadfastness that would not have been otherwise, but because of this trial. 
There's a common experience uh, for Angelinos. You go and get your car washed, or if you're a little bit old school like me, you take the soap and you put it in the bucket and you spray the bucket, but you spray yourself a little bit, and then you go find the little mop head thingy in the back of the garage and you go to town on your car and you wash your car. Well, what happens the next day? It hasn't rained for 92 days and it rains, right? It happens to the best and the worst of us. Angelinos. Rain after car washes. Happens all the time. It's the blessing and the curse of living in a place where we hardly expect inclement weather. Well, in trials, our fixation on ourselves, our uh, focus only on what we are going through in this moment is somewhat like looking at the weather app and seeing with 100% chance of precipitation that I'm going to go spend 40 bucks on a, on a bougie car wash and know it's going to rain tomorrow anyway. This sort of short-sightedness, this uh, myopic sort of sense of our trials, our fixation only on what's right in front of us, insistent that our coping and our striving toward figuring everything out and having all the answers, uh, unwilling to consider what God is doing in the bigger picture, what he's even going to just do tomorrow. It's because our confidence in our trials by instinct is in ourselves. It's our pride. It's our own ability to endure. It's our own toughness. It's all about our own capacity to deal with whatever we're going through. Our own ability to deflect reality and and buy things and do things that comfort us or distract us from what's really going on. But James is showing us here that the confidence that true faith has in the face of trials is confidence in God. It's in God that he's producing in us steadfastness. And Romans 5 would say amen. And true faith under trial, jarred by the impact of whatever difficulty it may be, is steered by providence toward a confidence in God. That although unsure of the precise movement of that providence, we are secure and steadfast first in Jesus, and therefore we can have confidence in the ultimate work God is doing whatever we face. Christian, your confidence in God and your eternal security in Him are the bedrock on which any and every trial in your life happens such that you know, James says, you know with full confidence that the God who saves is the God who is testing your faith and producing steadfastness. Paul says it this way in Philippians, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the confidence of true faith on trial. The confidence. Third and last, we see 
the consequence of true faith on trial. The consequence of true faith on trial. It would be enough if the trials were to produce steadfastness in us. It would be gracious already that we would have a God who would not only save us, but see us through and give us the fruit of steadfastness. Uh, That would be enough for us. That would be glorious truth in and of itself. But James brings us further and helps us to see now the consequence, the result of true faith on trial. It's not just steadfastness produced in us. We see the very ends in which God, in His good providence, uses trials to grow us and mature us in every way in the likeness of Jesus. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 4 sneaks in another command. I don't know if you even see it. It's the word let. The command here is very simple. It's for you to let it happen. For you to allow it to happen. For you to allow God to work. Uh, to allow him to use this steadfastness that is produced in trials to have a multiplying, multifaceted effect in your spiritual growth. This is so hard for us to do. This is something we already talked about. It's not our inclination to let uh, something happen to us. It's not our instinct when we face trials or when we see others go through trials. See, we want to fix and We want to help and we want to give wisdom. We want to tourniquet the wound. We aren't trying to just put a bucket under the leak. We're the ones running the lows trying to build a whole new roof when we face trials. We want to fix things. It's a common trope in old school jungle movies to fall into quicksand. And the quicksand, at least the made-up Hollywood kind, is the kind that if you thrash and flail, you'll only fall deeper. Well, even though quicksand in reality doesn't actually take that many lives per year. I did some internet searching this week. Uh, It's the picture of instead of flailing and thrashing and shouting, uh, we let We uh, face the person helping us calmly and let them pull us out. Uh, This is the passivity sort of sense in this uh, verb. It's a patience here. Uh, James says here, let steadfastness have its full effect. And the full effect is specifically that you may be Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What what a phrase, what a promise. The steadfast is produced by trials as God uses it, forms you into a more mature, a stronger, a more complete Christian. 
Through trials, God uses trials to give us steadfastness that then helps us to be more fit to serve Him with a thankful and worshipful perspective, having gone through a trial. We're then more able to love others in the way that they loved us amidst a trial. We're more understanding and empathetic and able to bear others' burdens. We're more experienced in life and able to encourage and counsel others. James says you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he uses these two words, perfect and complete. This is a picture of wholeness, completeness. It's the kind of maturity we saw in Colossians 1 a few weeks ago. As the goal of proclaiming Christ, that we may present everyone mature in Christ or complete in Christ. That's the same word, one of these words that we see here. And here James adds, as if it's already not enough, that God grows you in the likeness of Jesus under his sovereign care and in his ever uh, generous provision that you will be lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. The consequence of true faith in trials is that you will grow and mature and your character will flourish and develop. Your love will grow. Your discipline will grow. Your patience will grow. Your kindness will grow. Your self-control will grow. And you will ever increase more and more with every trial, small and big. And you will be, as James says, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now to be clear, this isn't a sort of sinless perfection. This isn't uh, an ability to never sin again in this life. Uh, That will come when Jesus returns, when He calls us home. 1 John 3 describes it this way, this actual completeness when we see Jesus. When He appears, we shall be like Him. And here's the reason why this can't happen in this life. Because we shall see him as he is. See, in this life, we won't see Jesus face to face. But when we do, we will be absolutely complete and perfect. Uh, But James in this passage is describing a completeness and a perfection and maturity uh, that is attainable for the Christian, but attainable only through trials in this life. You see, God will form you and shape you into a more and more mature and useful instrument in His hands. This changes our view and our value of trials. You see, if trials help produce this sort of steadfastness, and this steadfastness has this sort of full effect then trials aren't just obstacles to jump over. They're not potholes to avoid. Uh, Trials, James is showing us here, are the very crucible, the very fire, uh, the very kiln by which God is forming you into a vessel for honorable use. And so James says, Be patient. Let steadfastness 
have its full effect. There are so many things in life that are worth the wait. Letting your sourdough rise overnight. Waiting 45 minutes for your favorite Korean barbecue restaurant. Waiting in line to get into the stadium. Waiting for your pre-ordered iPhone 13. We wait so much, and we're just kind of used to it in L.A. But how much more and how much more patiently should we wait on God as He uses trials in our lives to grow us into the likeness of His Son? This sort of change in perspective, this sort of a slight shift in our value system, Warren Wiersbe describes so helpfully in this way. He says this, Our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the physical and material more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. Grace on campus, the consequence of true faith in trials is that our character is being grown and matured to be more like Jesus, and so let's be patient in trials and let God work. In October of 1871, October 8, 9, and 10, there was the great Chicago fire. A devastating event in the city's history, one that still has its effects today in terms of the architecture and the layout of the city. An established lawyer and friend of the great evangelist, D.L. Moody, was a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. And in the great Chicago fire of 1871, Horatio Spafford lost everything. He had just invested a majority of his estate earlier that year in the spring. And so the great Chicago fire was a devastating loss for Horatio Spafford. Just two years later, in November of 1873, Uh, after Horatio had lost a majority of his finances, he decided to send his family on a little bit of a vacation across the pond. And stuck on business, uh, Horatio's wife, Anna, and their four girls set sail on the SS 
Ville du Havre with some friends for this much needed respite, even still mourning the loss of so much of their wealth. November 21st, that ocean liner collided with a British vessel and sank in a mere 12 minutes. Horatio Spafford received that day a telegram that said, from his wife, saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio Spafford was crushed. Spafford immediately set sail for England to reunite with his wife. And on that trip across the Atlantic, the captain of the ship let him know when they were passing over the watery grave of an area where the SS Ville du Havre went down. And over that area, Horatio Spafford penned these famous words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And over a hundred years later, it is well with my soul is still a beloved hymn to many Christians. It's one of my favorites. Because it expresses the truth We see here in James 1 that those with true faith in a living God, we can count it all joy when we face various trials, that it is well with our souls. And just a few years later, Horatio and Anna had another daughter and another son. And that son in 1880 died of scarlet fever amidst an epidemic. And yet in the face of this series of trials, the tough life, the words of Spafford's song continue to ring true in his life. Uh, Spafford lost a majority of his investments. He lost his four daughters, and then he lost uh, his son. Uh, What would cause someone to respond to such devastating loss and such great tragedy in this way? To say, it is well with my soul. I think verse 2 of his great hymn gives the answer. Spafford wrote, and we often sing, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come. Let this blessed assurance control. And what's that assurance? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. This blessed assurance that Jesus himself has regarded our helpless estate and he did shed his own blood for our souls gives us unshakable confidence in the face of trials. If he did that 
much on the cross, how much more will He not also give us all things? And so we can count it all joy. First Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says it this way. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's with this eternal perspective of the return of Jesus that we live in trials to count it all joy. A joyful trust in a sovereign and good and gracious God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth, hard hitting truth right out the gate in this great epistle, James. Lord, the beginning of this quarter is not a time for most of us that we consider uh, how we should face trials. We're anticipating and we are looking forward to and enjoying, and Lord, rightfully so, all the good blessings that you've given us in uh, life at UCLA and uh, GOC and uh, Grace Church. And so God, we are grateful for that goodness in this season of blessing and fun and fellowship. But Lord, you've given us this passage and all and admittedly uh, difficult and serious passage at this point in the quarter because Lord, it is when we study your word and see truth like this that we can also anticipate all of the difficulty, but all of the sweet blessings that come with trial as we stand in the grace by which we are saved and are, are kept in your grace. So Lord, give us much grace, we ask. Help us, Lord, uh, to stand in trial and count it all joy. Lord, would we be a ministry defined by our joy in trials and our ability to come around one another and bear burdens and help each other to do the same, to count it all joy, knowing that you work and you produce steadfastness and that steadfastness has full effect. That is our heart, Lord, tonight. And that is our prayer. Until you return or you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.